to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Carl's guest is John Ortberg, senior pastor at Menlo Church in California. Carl talks to John about his book, Who Is This Man?, which looks at the unpredictable life of Jesus. John, I wanted to ask you about writing the book, Who Is This Man? Why did you write this book? Um, so many conversations with folks in the Bay Area where I live, um, and they just assume that God, faith are kind of not options, that something has been proved to show that no intelligent, educated person would believe. And what's really interesting is people um, have positive feelings about Jesus, um, but they know very little about him. And what I found was when I started to talk about what has his impact been on history, um, there was there was quite a sense of amazement, like most folks just don't know what a different world we live in than we would have lived if there hadn't been this guy called Jesus. And the great thing about the topic is whether somebody thinks there's a God or they don't think there's a God, whatever they think about the, you know, Jesus divine, all that kind of stuff, um, looking at what has his impact been on our world is something that anybody can do. So we all can kind of stand in the same place together, shoulder to shoulder, instead of arguing about it. And, and I like having that kind of conversation. So how do you know what you know about Jesus? Well, you know, I'm a pastor. Um, I'm not a historian, but I do love history and I do love to read. And there's just so much that's been written about Jesus. I mean, more has been written about him than anybody else. And um, what tends to happen is when you find a great person to read about Jesus, like a, a John Dixon from Australia, and you get into what John will say about Jesus and humility and how humility made its way into the pantheon of virtues, then that will lead to somebody else and that will lead to somebody else. And there's a great conversation about history and Jesus's impact in it. And for anybody that's interested, once you start, one good writer will lead you to a bunch of other ones. In a funny sort of way, there's a sort of skepticism even about the person of Jesus in history. Does that surprise you? Well, we live in a day where skepticism is uh, privileged. And I think partly because of the way that science works and because of the authority that science has, um, we live in a day where people are very concerned. They don't want to believe something that's false. We're much less concerned about not believing something that might be true. And so it's interesting how our languages around this, at least in the States, people will talk about um, honest doubt and blind faith, but we don't talk about honest faith or blind doubt. And faith can be honest and doubt can be blind, but there's just kind of, I, I think, something in the ether, something in the culture that says, I don't want to be gullible, I don't want to believe the wrong stuff. And so skepticism is assumed to be somehow more sophisticated or more educated um, than non-skepticism. The problem is everybody's got to live. What about what gives you confidence in the records of Jesus? Well, you know, there's wonderful stuff that's been written. There's a guy named Richard Bachman uh, in, in the UK who has written about Jesus and eyewitnesses. And one of the great things about being alive right now is we have more access to how history was done and how uh, writing happened in the first century than people have had since the first century. And um, so works like that, I think, can give people a real confident understanding that um, the folks who were writing about Jesus were quite intelligent people, and they were quite concerned to begin to capture in written form the stories that had been told about him before that first generation of eyewitnesses passed from the scene. 
And there are so, you know, there's no other manuscript that has the kind of documentation attached to it that the New Testament records do. So I think whether somebody finds themselves a believer in God or not, the wealth of information that's available on the manuscripts is, is um, very solid. You talk about the influence that Jesus has had, you know, across the centuries. What did Jesus leave when he left this world? Because he didn't leave a great deal, did well, he? Well, you know, one of the ways that I'll think about that sometimes is um, in, in the U.S. in school, sometimes there'll be uh, votes in classes on most likely to succeed. If you were to think about the famous figures in world history and ask at the moment that they died, who was least likely to succeed posthumously, Jesus would win in a landslide. Like at the moment of his death, He's obscure. Nobody outside of this one tiny little country has ever heard of him. He hasn't written anything, and he's been utterly discredited. I mean, Israel had a lot of people who were thought to be the Messiah. If they got crucified, that was Rome's way of saying you were not the Messiah, and he got crucified. Nobody of that little handful of people who were following him would have said, this movement's going to go on another day. So on the day after he died, I think it would be safe to say there's nobody who is of any repute in world history who would have been less likely to make their mark historically the day after they died than Jesus of Nazareth. So something amazing happened. So what is it? What, what, what amazing happened for you? Well, I, I, th I think the, the only way to explain the emergence of this movement around Jesus um, is the fact that, in fact, he was resurrected. And um, Tom Wright uh, has a wonderful uh, way of talking about really the two dynamics that were at work in the resurrection. And one of them was that the tomb was empty. Without an empty tomb, you really got no story. And, but then the other one was that people actually had appearances of Jesus. They actually saw and heard from him. If there were appearances but no empty tomb, folks would have just said hallucinations or his spirit or something like that. If there's an empty tomb without appearances, then people could say, well, somebody stole the body or something. But it's that combination of there was an empty tomb and there were people who encountered this person that led that little group of folks to say there is no alternate explanation for what's happened, but he actually has risen. And then when you look at the fact that it's a matter of historical record that this movement began, sometimes in the face of great persecution, folks just tend not to die for what they know was a lie. I wanted to explore, you know, the Greco-Roman world, the world that Jesus was in. Who were the people of kind of influence in that world? Um, you know, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, there is much that's wonderful about it. And, and the early church, to a large extent, involved kind of integrating the passion for learning and the great works of the Greco-Roman world with the influence of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, they tended to look up to the wealthy and the power. Those were the folks that were educated. Um, Aristotle used to talk about the great-souled man. And there was much that was virtuous that we admire about that character. But the great souled man was not a humble person, was not a forgiving person. There were ways that Jesus influenced what would become the world's picture of what greatness looks like that are quite different 
than the way that things looked in the Greco-Roman world. If you were someone who didn't have much money, you were someone who was a slave, what rights did you have in that world? Well, again, I'm not a historian. There would be quite a lot of variation um, from one city to another, from one culture to another, um, much as there is in our day from one century to another, or from one culture to another. But as a general rule, um, the notion that we have of the dignity and worth of individuals uh, is actually an idea that was not prominent in the ancient world. So Seneca, this uh, Roman writer of the first century, said, um, we drown the infirm at birth. And that wasn't considered something to be embarrassing or something that they would try to hide. It's just they viewed life in that way. If a child was born and it was a male, healthy child, um, then they would want it to live. And if you were a citizen in Rome, that was quite an important thing. If it was a female child, much less important. And there was an enormous, uh, it, it's thought that there were something like 1.3 or 1.4 million boys for every 1 million girls. And the rest of the girls were just left to die of exposure um, because they were the wrong gender. And this little group of followers of Jesus remembered that he said, let the children come to me. And a, a Norwegian historian by the name of Baki, a Norwegian scholar, actually wrote a book called um, uh, The Invention of Childhood in Early Christianity. Because he said the way that we think about children as people uh, who are to be prized and cherished didn't exist in the ancient world in the way that it does now. And that little community remembered that the man they followed said, let the little children come to me. Because there's something about not just children that Jesus taught about the other minority and people in need in that community that changed. What were the sort of things that Jesus said, even outside in, or including children, that shifted the world's view on the smaller people, the needier people? Yeah, we, you know, one of the interesting dimensions of Jesus's ministry is what we would talk about in our day is the other. You know, always, this is a real deep human dynamic where there's me and there's you, there's us and them, there's the United States and Australia, there's whatever it is, rich, poor, black, white. And, and the other being kind of the outcast, the excluded, is just a very prominent part of the thinking of the human race. And with Jesus, that, that idea from ancient Israel that every human being is made in the image of God, um, that's an idea that we all tend to take for granted. It didn't exist in the ancient world. In other creation myths in the ancient Mesopotamian world, the idea was the king might have been made in the image of the primary god, but the poor, the slaves, were either not made in the image of any god or in the image of a much inferior god. So this notion that every human being, male and female, is made in the image of the God, the creator of all things, has quite explosive implications that took a long time to work out. And it's really Jesus who brought that notion of the dignity and worth of every human being from little Israel to the much larger world. So you have Jesus saying things like, whatever you have done for the least of these and, and the beginnings of um, hospitals, of orphanages, of um, a community that would care for people that they were not even related to. Um, in the early centuries of the church, there were a couple of epidemics that would wipe out up to a third or, or a quarter of the population of whole cities. And there were folks that would write about, in general, in those cities, people would just leave people for dead. 
But then you have this community that remembers they followed a guy who said, whatever you do for the least of these. And so they would risk their own lives to take in um, those who were ill, those who were diseased, um, care for lepers. Um, there are speeches that were given in the early centuries of the church raising money for the care of lepers that are extremely moving. And there just simply was nothing like that going on in the ancient world. Enjoying this podcast. Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview, and transform beliefs, attitudes, and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview. John, we take in, in Western countries across the world just the idea that kids would be educated, that people would have health care. Yeah. Uh, you're suggesting that in Jesus' time that wasn't just a normal part of life. People have always loved to learn. It's just part of the human condition. We want to know, we want to discover. So that's always been a part of us. But the idea that everybody ought to be educated, again, that's an idea that emerged from someplace. In the ancient world, formal education was basically um, restricted to uh, male children of wealthy families. Some exceptions, but that was kind of the general rule. And then there's this little community and they remembered that they followed a guy who the last thing he said was go and teach everybody and make disciples. And Jesus himself would teach um, rich and poor, male and female, slave and free. And so they began to do that. And then over time, the power of Jesus' words and his teachings and the idea of making them available to all people created communities that prized universal learning. And um, there's this wonderful book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. And part of what it talks about is there was an era where um, a little community of followers of Jesus were about the only place that saved not only the Bible and uh, books about the Bible, but the great works of the Greco-Roman era, era because people loved to learn and they believed that passing on great learnings honored God. And eventually, when you get to Martin Luther and the idea that the Bible ought to be unleashed for everybody to read, that's what created this great passion for universal literacy. There was nobody in the ancient world saying, we got to teach everybody how to read and write. Um, that really was uh, an outflow of the Jesus movement that believed that everybody was made in the image of God, where Jesus says everybody ought to be taught. Um, the great impulse to start schools from the, the original universities, Paris, Oxford, the motto of Oxford University continues to be the Lord is my light. Cambridge in America, Harvard, Yale, well over 90% of all the colleges and universities that were founded before uh, the Civil War in our country were begun by followers of Jesus who did it as part of their mission to educate everybody because that would glorify God. In our world now, the monastic movement has an interesting place. It's, it's almost like a scene, mostly men who ran away from, from the world. But people like the Jesuits and the monastic movement made a huge difference in the area of education, didn't they? Um, one of the things that folks who do a lot of work in the history of science will talk about is precisely that point. So you have these monastic communities where the preservation of learning was prized and often associated with them would be hospitals, but then schools often grew out of those orders initially. 
And the Jesuits and their impact on education around Europe and then around the world um, has been amazing. A lot of technology grew out of monastic community. Spectacles were first talked about because um, monks needed to pour over texts. Um, clocks got invented in monastic communities because they needed to know when to pray. Um, science, you know, in our day, so many people think of faith and science as enemies. But a lot of folks who have worked on the history of science have posed the question, why is it that science actually grew up in the human race as we know science today in the era of the medieval church? And um, a great thinker, Alfred North Whitehead, when he was asked what made possible the rise of science, his answer was, it was the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Because it requires, a lot of folks would say, in order to do science, the belief that creation is orderly because it was made by a rational, orderly God, but also that it's unpredictable because that God is far beyond us so that we would have to do empirical work. We would have to experiment to try to find out about the order that's there, but that we couldn't just intuit. So the notion that science and faith are enemies is actually a fairly aberrant and pretty recent one. And the reality is that science grew out of faith communities and um, the early folks who made a huge impact on science were almost universally also believers in God and followers of Jesus. Healthcare in many nations is, is seen as a universal, almost human right. Mm -hmm. Was that the monastic movement had, a, had an impact in that area as well, didn't it? Uh, it did. and. Very early on, when those communities began to form, um, because part of their uh, understanding of Jesus' teachings was um, that we were to care for the sick, that we were to care for the least of these. So what we think of now as hospitals um, began around the fifth or sixth centuries, and they were normally attached to um, these monastic communities. And then when you think about so many expressions of compassion for folks that are suffering, um, the Red Cross, if you look at how many hospitals in the United States or in Europe have names like the Good Samaritan or St. Anthony's or um, St. Andrew's, th that's not a coincidence. The connection between healing and these monastic communities and followers of Jesus was a very deep one. It's intriguing, isn't it? Because we now live in a world where that it's almost like that connection other than the name is broken, isn't it? And yet it's, it's helpful to remember some of the roots it and is, motivations. It is, and it's interesting. There was a, a British journalist named Malcolm Muggeridge who was an atheist agnostic, and he went to study the work of Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And one of the conclusions he was driven to, because again, he was not a believer, but he said, you know, it's just hard to find um, the atheist's orphanage. You know, and, and that doesn't mean that there's not somebody who's an atheist that might be a far, a far kinder and better person than me. But it is to say there's nothing about atheism or secularism or the idea that um, the material world is all that exists that says there is a dignity and worth to suffering or dying people that I ought to sacrifice myself for. But the, the belief that there is a God like the one that Jesus taught of who says that the most pain-filled, um, most disabled, most hurting human being um, carries the image of God and that it's an ennobling thing to sacrifice for, 
for them. Well, you know, there's dynamite in that that has moved people for many, many centuries to be willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of folks that in the ancient world were just put on the dung heap. It's intriguing, isn't it? In places like Australia, America, England, many Western nations, you know, if people think about the church and Christianity, almost mm -hmm. the first word they think about is being judgmental. Yeah. But what you're suggesting is if you're, if you're fully a follower of Jesus, <laughs> you would actually be someone who steps out for the most needy. Well, and that critique of religion is very interesting also. When you think about who's been the most powerful and devastating impactor or, or uh, articulator of the danger of religion gone wrong, Jesus would be right up there. Um, there's a woman who wrote an article about, you know, our word hypocrite. We, we talk so much about how religious people can be hypocrites. And um, Jesus is the first one to use that word in a systematic way about people that mispractice religion. And it was actually a term that would be used in the theater um, in Jesus' day. And in fact, there's a, a little town, Sepphoris, that was a few miles away from where he grew up in Nazareth. He may, along with his dad, well have been a part of constructing the theater in Sepphoris. And, and they would use that phrase, hypocritos, hypocrites, to describe actors that have masks to wear. And he's actually the one that said, um, you hypocrites, when he was talking to people who are using religion in the wrong way to become judgmental, to feel superior to other people. So actually, even when we accuse Christians of being hypocritical, it turns out we are simply echoing what Jesus himself first said. Wow. Look at, looking again at that, that issue that you touched on earlier about the humility, uh, in the Greco-Roman world, in Jesus' time, mm -hmm. people didn't actually stoop down to people less than them, did they? No. Um, the, the folks that were admired generally, they were courageous. There was a lot that we would look up to as well. Um, they, were, they were smart. They were industrious. They were effective. But humility was not looked on as a virtue in the ancient world. Um, in, in fact, Aristotle would say that the great-souled person would avoid, for example, gratitude. Because I don't want to feel like I'm indebted to anybody. I'd want you to feel like you're indebted to me. But if I was to express a sense of being indebted to you, that was seen as a diminishment of myself as a person. And so for Jesus, when Jesus would say things like, um, uh, the Gentiles lord it over others, he was not being pejorative, he was being descriptive. Uh, you know, if followers of the Greco-Roman culture were to hear those words, they would say, yeah, that's exactly what we do. And it's a little bit like in our day, somebody scores a touchdown, it's like, of course I'm great. So this notion of saying, no, actually greatness is servanthood, greatness is to be a slave. Nobody in the ancient Greco-Roman world, nobody, Plato said, how can anyone be content if they're a slave? Nobody was talking about greatness in terms of servanthood and slavery and humbling themselves in the way that Jesus was. And over time, the attractiveness of that idea, the power of it took root. And so we kind of take it for granted. We live as if, of course, everybody's always thought to be humble would be a wonderful thing. That's not the case. That's an idea that came from somewhere. It well, how did Jesus talk about humility? Well, I mean, what did he either say or do that actually kind of put that on the agenda? Well, you know, one of the primary expressions of it, he would talk about it a lot. The, the, the primary argument that the, the disciples would have with each other was who's the greatest. And 
one of the striking aspects of the New Testament records is it's quite um, open about how often the disciples argued about that. You know, it does not make them look any better than they actually were. And so Jesus would ask them, so what were you arguing about along the way? And it's, you know, they're all looking down at their shoes, nobody's saying anything because they don't want to say to Jesus, we're arguing about who's the best. And, and there's this story about where one of them brings their mommy to Jesus to say, you know, can my son sit one in your right hand and one in your left? Seating was a big deal. And Jesus is constantly challenging them on it. He would tell these parables where he would say, you know, when you go to a party, um, don't vie for the seat of honor, you know, go sit in the kitchen. And this goes on right up to the end of his life um, when they're gathered together for the Last Supper and it's time for somebody to wash feet. And he gets up and begins to do that. There is no record in the ancient world of a, a master washing the feet, no record of a teacher washing the feet of his students, no record of a rabbi washing the feet of uh, his disciples until Jesus. And so when he does that and says, now what I have done, you are to do. And then when he goes to the cross and, and there's the great Christ hymn, maybe the earliest Christian writing that we have. And Paul's talking about Jesus and talking about his greatness. But the way that he describes that is who being in the very form of God. I, I had a Greek New Testament pre, uh, teacher when I was in college and he talked about that passage. Um, Paul uses a little participle, being in the form of God, and you have to figure out how should we translate that participle. And sometimes it's translated as a concessive, although he was in the form of God. My old teacher, Dr. Hawthorne, said actually the best translation of it is, who precisely because he was in the form of God made himself nothing, took the form of a servant. Because when Jesus became a servant, he wasn't disguising who God is. That's what the Greeks would have thought. That's what the Romans would have thought. That's when Zeus and Hermes come down, they disguise themselves as humble people. When Jesus came as a little baby, when he became a carpenter, when he died on a cross, he wasn't disguising who God is. He was revealing who God is. Precisely because he was in nature God, he, became, he humbled himself to obedience and that turns everything upside down. And so in his teaching and his life and his death, um, he shows humility as the real definition of greatness. It's, it's one thing for somebody to teach that and even demonstrate it. It's another thing for it to kind of become part of our culture, yeah. going from a vice to a virtue. Yeah. In your mind, why has that taken off? Why has it become the virtue that it has? Well, you know, I think there's a constant struggle with that. If you look at at least the TV shows that tend to be on in America, if you look at sometimes candidates who run for office, I'm saying nothing about Australia, um, humility isn't always the most admired virtue. And, you know, we're kind of a leadership crazy people. And there'll be sometimes when people go into the leadership secrets of Attila the Hun and, and, and that notion that self-promotion, self-advancement, power, self-aggrandizement is the way to the good life. That's never died fully and it keeps cropping back up. Um, but I do think there's something in because of the way that God has made us, because of the human heart, there's something in us that when we see a person truly humble themselves and, and, and they truly do become a servant and they live a life of self-forgetfulness in the best sense rather than self-promotion. Um, that part of us that's made in the image of God wakes up and we say, oh yeah, that's, that's the road to joy. That's the road to 
self-transcendence. You uh, have written a number of books, um, speak internationally, uh, and, and seeking to follow Jesus in your life. In, in this, how is that a tension for you? How's the, the level of, of uh, as it were, your profile against a humble lifestyle and trying to live that out? How do you hold that tension for yourself? Um, you know, years ago, I was working at a church and it was, and then I left there to go work in a much higher profile church, Willow Creek Community Church. The church that I had been before then had fewer people attending it than there were on staff at Willow Creek. So like I'm, the next week I'm at this church where I'm teaching the staff and there's more people on staff than there were at the church that I left. Part of what I was real aware of was, I'm no smarter this week than I was last week. And I think in general, um, from the outside, we tend to look at scale and how many people are involved in, you know, whether it's the church you're at or the job you're at or any of that kind of stuff. That all becomes baseline really, really quick and you get used to it. And whatever glamour it might look like is attached to it from the outside wears off real fast. So I think it's mostly just a matter of, you know, life isn't much different for any of us. Um, the scale stuff we get used to real quick. And then, um, I have a wife and a family who help keep me humble really, really well. And I, I love to be at a church where there are folks who know me and they help keep me humble really well. So I, that's part of the beauty of community. Fabulous. Last question. This series is called Jesus the Game Changer. If we said to you, so how's Jesus the Game Changer? How would you answer that? Oh, man. Um, here's what I'd say to people, because what I find, at least here in Northern California, where there is so much skepticism, um, People feel like uh, if I can't believe in God or I can't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then I guess I'm out of luck. I'm on the outside. And what I'd say to those folks is, no, here's where Jesus is the game changer. He comes as he came 2,000 years ago. And he says words nobody else would think to say. And he tells stories about how things are that continue to haunt the human race. And there's people who are intrigued by this. They get woke up, they're dissatisfied, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're restless. And they say, I think I will give him a try. I think I will try to do what he says. And as they step into that, they discover it's true. It's real. There is this God. I am more than what I see. Uh, I'm more than just neurons and tissues and and they come to the conclusion that Jesus is really smart and and then to his identity to to believing he must be the one who is revealing God to us he must be the way through whom the kingdom has been made present he must be the one who really did die for my sins and through whose resurrection I have the promise of life but they don't start there, they end there. And so what I say to people is, um, if you don't know if there's a God, if, you're not, if the whole idea of Jesus being divine sounds goofy to you, that's fine. Put that stuff all on the shelf. Just start by admiring him. Just start by actually trying to do something that he said to do. And if you just take that step, what you'll find is it will lead you to the next step and lead you to the next step and lead you to the next step and, and if you start by being an admirer and a follower, eventually the belief piece will come.
And that's exactly the way that it works for the disciples. Unfortunately, in the church, a lot of times we've gotten that totally backwards. And we try to make it this weird intellectual contest and say to people, you've got to become a believer. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's helpful. I think Jesus becomes the game changer for anybody who says, today I will try to do one thing he says. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax-deductible and non-tax-deductible donations. Thanks for listening. Oh,